behind it. We're, uh, we're in numbers and we're going to continue on. I didn't quite finish last week. And so what, what I did is we're going to grab this, work our way through. It's still final steps. Uh, it was going to be final steps part one and then final steps part two. And then we'll, we'll work through numbers. And then at the end, I, I mentioned last week, if you have something, and again, I'm, I, uh, I said, don't re-preach. We've done that. But if you've got an application from numbers that you say, hey, this is something I've learned and I put to practice in my life. And actually, it's a good discipline of ours. Uh, we often will share. I don't know if you've been in a Bible study, and we have a tendency when we're sharing in a Bible study, we always delve into the theory. We always, we always work in an area that we're doing fine in. And so one of the things I'd like to, as we're, we're working through different books of the Bible, as we come to these times, and I might be making everyone cross out what they said, but take an application, but make it real, something you apply, something you actually put into practice. Not that you're like, you know, this good thing I've been doing, numbers affirmed that I was doing it right, and everyone else should do it right as well. I'm talking about what confronted you, what, what is something that maybe God used to prick uh, the brain. I put four things down that that jumped into my mind uh, th- that would help spur us on at the end when we're talking. But obviously, ideally, uh, from the whole group, we're just talking. It doesn't have to be this profound, deep reanalysis. Again, I actually don't want it to be reanalysis. I want it to be real application of God's truth in your life. And iron sharpens iron. That is the part of coming together. So we're going to work through final steps, work through these chapters. I'm going to be moving, obviously, quickly or as quick as I can move. Um, I do not have any slides, and that is, uh, it was by choice. Uh, Theron and I, yesterday night, we kicked off the India class. So we're teaching a college class in India. And so I had, uh, as I told you before, unwisely decided that one month, crammed into one month is better than spreading it out. And Heather's like, you should have spread it out. That would have been smarter. Um, the other mistake I made that saved me a night a week, and I think I told you, I kept on working off a 13 and a half hour time difference. So 8 a.m. equals 6.30, me teaching 6.30. So it's like, yeah, you know, early dinner or late dinner, all this works out. It's only 10 and a half hours difference. So uh, Thera and I were up here at 9, from 9.30 to 10.30 is when the class goes. So after we're done here, he's going to come here and here, switch all the equipment around, and we're teaching uh, the Zoom class at 9.30, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night. Um, we have about 18, there's about 18 students in the class from all over India. And so um, looking forward uh, to finishing that, I'll be honest, it's a weird stretch when you come back t- to the office and you're like, oh, it's 9 o'clock, and I feel, I feel like going to take a nap, you know. <laughs> it's, just, it's time to be done here, you know. And so tonight's actually easier because you just build all the way to it, but the other ones. But uh, Theron uh, and I have enjoying it. Uh, he'll be diving in and teaching some of the lessons. Uh, specifically, he'll be teaching the class uh, towards the end on logic and reason, uh, sharing what we're doing with the teens, but also kind of sharing the lessons there as we build on apologetics. And so we've enjoyed it. I did some of this. I taught at a conference uh, last year live in India. And so this is the college course version of it uh, that they're diving into and, you know, adapted somewhat. The assignments are different, a little bit more writing for them. But we're excited about this and being able to expand on it. But on to numbers, just want to explain our make my excuse for no slides. That's it all leads in there. Uh, be praying for that class. We're excited about what's going on. We are in Numbers 31, and so I'm just going to dive right back in. What I closed out with was reading how furious 
Moses was with the leaders. They were sent out to fight the Midianites. And we're going to get into some of the details. 12,000 men were chosen with Joshua leading and with Phinehas blowing the trumpet. So it's a holy war going out, sent by God to attack the Midianites, to, to recompense. And all Midianite warriors die in this battle. They kill every soldier on the other side. Now, you're going to encounter Midian later on with Joshua, and that's because the Midianites, I shared last week, the Midianites encompassed a lot more than this area. So in this area, they were all annihilated, but the Midianites kind of grabbed hold of different people groups, and they got woven into the Midianites. So the Ishmaelites and different groups that were nomadic would become Midianites, basically, uh, because of the kind of conglomerate that worked in there. The whole population in this area was destroyed, except virgin women and girls. And so it is a, a literal holy war. Um, the whole wealth of Midian lands that they had goes to Israel, and people struggle with the numbers, and they always love to grab the numbers in the Bible and, and turn 675,000 into 675 or, or 6,000 because they struggle with the numbers. But they had these animals. This is real numbers that were taking place. The math wouldn't make sense dividing it up afterwards. And what you find is that distribution is split between warriors and Israel. The ones that went out to fight get half of it. And the ones that stay back, that God had back, they get half of the, the loot. And then the priests are allocated one five hundredth of what the warriors got. And the Levites get one fiftieth from Israel. But there's some key things in here. And we talked last week about this. We, we, we wrestle with this. And it's not the easiest topic. God sends them out to literally annihilate. And they kill. And you're, you're killing boys. You're killing children. Um, it's very hard in our world to, to, to wrestle with it. There's dangerous ways around that. One is to act like God didn't say to do it. Uh, two is to say that the biblical record is not accurate. Three is to look at God and say he's evil or he's bad or there's something wrong with him because we see it in the context of human eyes. Um, I said last week, God is the only one that can directly send and he doesn't do that anymore in this way. He did send Israel to do this. That the punishment that was doled out was for the wickedness and the sin that was there, and don't neglect God's redemptive purpose in working in the lives of children and babies specifically, and in some ways you see a redemptive purpose there. We're going to get to a part of this that's critical, because what do we see from God right now? Plagues, death, killing, killing, taking this, doing all this stuff, an angry leader, you haven't killed everyone, and so you have this idea that God is the author of death, because you, you get this this feel from that. But as you work through 31, after the soldiers have plundered everything, they're given very strict guidelines on purifying. And you remember if you've touched a dead body, encountered a dead body, there's a lot of purification to re-enter into regular life. Don't miss that when you're walking through those, those scenarios because it points to something. Why did they have to go through purification? Because they've encountered what? They've touched death, right? And death is a result of what? Sin. Sin, unholiness. And so as God is making every warrior go through this process, it's reminding everyone that God is the God of life. 
that God is not the God of death. That he's not okay with that because death signifies the result of sin. And so he's reminding them all that he needs holiness. And I, I hope we can see how critical that is, especially in light of all the death that's unfolded. They killed every warrior and then got yelled at by Moses for leaving people alive. Why? Because these could have been a, the same people who took you down a path of sin. What's interesting is as you work through this, Moses divides the spoil in two ways. That's verse 25. And then they're accounting for all the plunder. And then the, the, the oblation for the Lord in verse 48 it says, And the officers were over thousands of the hosts, the captains of thousands, captains of hundreds came near unto Moses. And they said unto Moses, Thy servants have taken the sum of the men of war which are under our charge, and there lacketh not one man of us. And there's a reason for Scripture's wording. The guys that are over a thousand, there's 12 of those, right? 12,000 men. But then it went down from there to people that were a lot over a lot less men. And all of these leaders are saying to Moses, well, there's no one missing. It's not that we lost a few men, it's that we lost zero men. The Midianite host was much larger than 12,000. God sent 12,000 men to go annihilate a force much larger than them. And in the end, they lost not a single warrior. And that makes sense to us in today's warfare, right? Well, drone strike, boom, got them. There's no drone strikes then. How do they fight? Hand to hand. The longest raiding weapon you have is a bow and arrow. And, you know, I'm sure they were a lot better than I was, but you're not slinging arrows at 200 yards and taking people down. In other words, it's not, it's not normal to have no one pass away. And so what these men do is, is we have therefore brought an oblation for the Lord what every man hath gotten of jewels of gold, chains and bracelets, rings, earrings and tablets to make an atonement for our souls before the Lord. In other words, what they could take off the body, which they would, what, what you know, this guy has a neat dagger and this guy has a neat bracelet and you kill them, you take their stuff. That's, that's not shared. That's the plunder of the warrior. And they're coming to God and they're saying, we, we want to make an offering because they're recognizing something, right? Why is no one dead in the Israelites? How is that possible? It's only the Lord. There's no explanation. And so it is a miracle. God has obviously fought for them. They're not supposed to not have any losses. And then it says, And Moses and Eliezer the priest took the gold of them, even all wrought jewels, and all the gold of the offering that they offered up to the Lord. Of the captains of thousands and of captains of hundreds was 16,750 shekels. For the men of war had taken spoil, every man for himself. And Moses and Eliezer the priest took the gold of the captains of thousands, of hundreds, and brought it unto the tabernacle of the congregation for a memorial for the children of Israel before the Lord. They took what they had gathered, rightfully theirs, and they gave it to memorialize God's hand in the battle. But they also gave the gift to align their thoughts to him. Can you imagine being the guys that just brought this many cattle, this many sheep, this many prisoners, this much stuff? You just divvied it up over Israel. You just took care of the priests. You just took care of the Levites. Everything you've done has brought glory to you. And then you realize you didn't do it. 
And they do the right thing here. They recognize that God needed to be honored, that he alone deserved the glory. And so they made sure the nation remembers who took care of them. I put as an action step, kings died, by the way, Balaam dies here. Midian, in this reason, was wiped out. And as I said, they'll come up again. It was a large, expansive, nomadic tribe. And they faced the consequences of defrauding God, of attacking his worship by corrupting his people. And it was devastating. It was real and it was serious. And that's actually one of the points we need to walk away from. Uh, we're not sent on a journey to go annihilate groups of people. That is not what God's sending anyone to do. When people say they're sent by God to do that, they're lying. They are not. God is not working that way. And he's very clear when he wants it done. He, he, he has it where people don't even understand that until they have to be told again. He says it directly to them. He makes it bluntly clear what he wants done. But what we learn from this is the devastating consequence of corrupting his worship, of corrupting his people. It's serious and it's real. I put a note here and I highlighted it. Corrupters of faith should take heed. God is not joking. It is never a joke. It is always serious. And then I put the second one because every time I write something like that, I always think of what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Examine yourself. And then I put here, take heed that you're not one of the corruptors. And how easy it is, is to become someone who corrupts and how easy it is, it is for us to tell God it's not a big deal. And one of the things we must learn as his church is that corrupting his worship, polluting that they stole from God is real and it's serious. Actually, and I know it's, Weird to bring it up here because this is not who Moses was. But why isn't Moses entering the promised land? Disobeyed, but what his disobedience was what? It was dishonoring, yeah, pride, but he took, he stole from God. That's what the Midianites were doing in a different way. Took the glory from God. He said to the nation of Israel, look at me. When he said, look at me, he turned their eyes from God to worship him. What was his punishment? Yeah, he didn't enter. Seems stiff and stern, and I would remind you, God's serious. This seems unbelievable. Now, in God's providence, who's going to end up staying here? We're about to talk about it. Chapter 32, we're about to have two and a half tribes want to stay on this side of the Jordan. And what has God done? He's doing to the Midianites what he is going to command them to do to all of Canaan. And that's not leave them around. They're not to stay. And so we're getting close to this crossing into the Jordan to capture the land. But the kingdoms conquered on the current side of Jordan now catch the eye of two and a half tribes. And they approach Moses with what I like to call the request. 32 Verses 1 through 5, Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. And when they saw the land of Jazir and the land of Gilead, that behold, the place was a place for cattle, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spake unto Moses and Eliezer the priests and unto the princes of the congregation. This is in front of the leadership. Saying, Atarath and Dibon and Jazer and Nimran and Heshbon and Elielah and Shibam and Nebo and Vion, 
even the country which the Lord smote before the congregation of Israel is a land for cattle. And thy servants have cattle. Very pragmatic, very practical. Wherefore, said they, if we have found grace in thy sight, let this land be given unto thy servants for possession, and bring us not over Jordan. And that's important. If you highlight in your Bible, highlight that. I've never picked up on this. I always thought that Moses overreacts to their request, but he doesn't. And it's important to read, don't bring us over the Jordan. Don't have us cross. And, and I always read it in the context of they don't want to bring all their stuff over, which is true. But they're also saying, don't bring us over. We just want to stay here. Moses was not pleased. Because he didn't want the rest of Israel discouraged by them staying he reminds them of the punishment of the previous generation that failed to enter. He responds to them and says, don't you remember what took place 40 years ago when they didn't enter the land, when they didn't go into the promised land? Do you remember what happened when they did this? And so the tribes actually adjust their request. They change it. It's not like they're clarifying. They adjust it. And they say, we're going to build pens for the flocks. They would build rudimentary cities and then they said, we'll lead in crossing of the Jordan. That's different than the end of five. Don't bring us over the Jordan. And now they're saying, we'll lead in crossing the Jordan. But let, our, let us build this and leave our kids here. Now imagine, how can they do that? Well, they've killed everyone that could have attacked them in the meantime. No Midian, no Og. And I'm already forgetting the other king that they killed. But he's dead. So... Um, they're okay with it, but they're going to cross. Look at 18 through 24. It says, We will not return unto our houses unto the, until the children of Israel have inherited every man his inheritance, for we will not inherit with them on the yonder side, Jordan, or forward, because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side, Jordan, eastward. And Moses said unto them, If you will do this thing, if you will go armed before the Lord to war, and will go all of you armed over Jordan before the Lord until he had driven out his enemies from before him and the land be subdued before the Lord. Then afterward you shall return and be guiltless before the Lord and before Israel and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you will not do so, behold, you've sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Build you cities for your little ones and folds for your sheep and do that which hath preceded out of your mouth. That's not a light statement there at all. In other words, if you do the adjusted request, if you lead and you stay and you fight and you don't come back, all's well. You come back before that and you've sinned. And what did he say? Be sure you're what? Yeah, yeah. It's going to catch up to you. He's going to enact on you what you would have done to somebody else. And there's a real danger when Israel begins to fragment here to lose connection and identity and to engage again in the sin of disobedience, failing to take what God has promised. Yet through God's provision and God's providence and God's expansion, they're given a way to stay. Israel gets expanded territory and they still remain faithful to the cause given by God. But I want you to note something. They had to be reminded and they had to adjust their mindset. See, we tend to look at these two and a half tribes and say they got what they wanted. And I want us to see they were granted this by God, 
but they had to adjust how they thought about getting it. God was not okay with them saying, thanks for taking care of these three kingdoms. Now we've got good grazing land. Do the best you can. We'll send you a cow for a festival. Not going to happen. You must participate in the accomplishment of what God has done. And I put here as a question, he providentially gave them this land, but it was under his guidelines, his parameters, his way. They didn't get their way. They were moved to understand they had to do it God's way. And here's a, here's a thought for us. Are we willing to adjust in light of God's plan and purpose? To maybe get his reward, what we even think will be his reward. That's the thing that I think is fascinating here. What we may see as something we want, Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh could see what they want and they could have... They went after it their way, which was not okay with what God wanted to do. And then when they adjusted what they were saying and they did what God wanted his way, he still gave them what they wanted. And I think there's two ways to look at that. One is I see the graciousness of God to give them the land they wanted, cattle land. These are the cowboys, I guess. These are the ones riding around, following after the cows and keeping it going. However, there's the other side to that. You can pursue something that's not bad your way, and it's bad. Moses said, this isn't good. You're messing up what God wants. You're breaking his promises. And I hope we can see both sides of this. Because uh, I put here, I'm afraid we too often just pursue the reward, the blessing, and care little for the harm that our way in pursuit will cause. There is a right way to pursue reward. And the reward might be the same, but the pursuit in one manner is sin, and the pursuit in the other is not sin. And I put here, make sure your goals, good as they may be, are sought biblically be willing to adjust to match what is best for all of God's people and then be surprised be overwhelmed with God's graciousness and how often he gives you the thing you would have pursued but he does want it pursued his way and notice what Moses said you back out on pursuing it God's way and what's going to happen your sin will find you out You'll lose what you wanted when you remove the pursuit the way God said he wanted it to be pursued. Now, we're going to move on uh, to the next chapters, and I'm going to move quickly through 33 through 36. Um, we continue now our journey in the preparation. So what do we have now? Where are we at? We, we come to the first final steps, and we've taken care of Midian. We've punished them for their defrauding of God. We've watched two and a half tribes see what they want, pursue it their way, receive correction, and kudos to them, respond to correction, adjust to what God would want, lead the charge, and now what they want becomes a positive and a good thing. God has already set in his mind to give it to them, but they must pursue his way. And now we're coming to, we're getting ready to enter the land. What does is, what is Moses finish with? And I know there's Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a recap. So Deuteronomy is going to work through 
so many things that we see in all these, all these books. He's done, though. He's finishing up. Why and what does he talk about? And what we get is, is a recount of Israel's movements and camps. Now, I want you to know in verse, in, in not verse, in chapter 33, which I'm not going to read through all of them. I'm going to list it because, one, it would be just torture for me to pronounce all the names over and over again out loud. They sound great in my head. When I say them out loud, it seems like I'm, I'm chewing on three rocks and I'm just not getting anywhere. So, um, two, if to go to 33, to go through it, I'm in it for two or three weeks. There's just no way around talking through what we're talking about. So I'm going to give you the overview of it. These places, not every place that they've been is mentioned, and some places they mentioned they haven't talked about yet. So this is Moses' recount, 42 stops basically, and it's kind of restating Exodus and Numbers in a slightly different format. However, the indication is it's in order, and you might think, wow, that's going to make the map so easy to know where they've been. And I was reading a commentator who says it is the hardest thing for them to pinpoint down because these places don't always exist in the same place. They don't know where they're at. And there's a lot of guessing and a lot of people, and I could see myself, if I lived in that land and someone says, I'm looking for Jericho, I'm like, right there, that's it, you know. You want to pay me $10 to go look at it because that's my land, right? That's, a lot of that happened, so we got tossed off of where things were. And so it's not as easy to know, but there are movements of this. And you might think, why in the world would we recap where we've been? Why go through every campsite? Well, we were at the creek, and then we were on the mountain, and then we were by the tree, and then we went here, and then we went there. And then in, in the middle section, they get into details of what happened, recounting failures and God's blessing and grace, and, and that's exactly why he does that. You get a recap of how God has worked to move his people to his reward for them in spite of their sin, and proving over and over his faithfulness and power to accomplish his promises and purposes. What's the best thing to remember when you're getting ready to go into the promised land? How God got you there. And that's what this is. This is what God has done. This is how God moved you from enslavement to conqueror. This is the journey we don't sugarcoat the problems. We don't sugarcoat your sin. But what we're highlighting, what we're elevating, what we're bringing to bear is that God is faithful. God has done this. He's moved us. Now, the breakdown in the camping, this is 33, 1 through 49. You're going to get from Goshen to the Red Sea, one movement, kind of, 3 through 8. Then you're going to get the Red Sea to Sinai. That's 8, verses 8 through 15. Then from Sinai to Kadesh, verses 16 through 36, and then from Kadesh to Moab, verses 37 through 49. As you look over this, what is this recounting? Well, what Moses did as a leader. We got the Exodus story. We got the whole plagues. We got all the things that he did to Pharaoh, and then we're leaving. And what has Moses done? 33. That's Moses' life. It's what he accomplished. One writer put this, it's an obituary for Moses. And it's a fitting obituary. Midianites was his last battle. He leaves the scene. He's not crossing the Jordan. And then there is a cycle or a pattern. Um, I am less of a pattern finder. I want to be fair in my study. I'm not typically a guy that's looking for some pattern. It, it has to be really obvious for me to say, hey, that's, that feels right. And so I list this 
because there is a sense of repetitive pattern that is there. You do see it a little bit. You see every seven stops, there's a repeat that kind of flows in there. And some people are much more gifted in seeing those patterns, and some people are too gifted in seeing patterns. <laughs> and so it goes both ways. I, I'm a person who falls a little bit on the don't see it as quickly. I'm much more of a literal person, and so I'm, I'm going to look at each stop as we work through it. But there is a cycle. It's, it's, it's hard to miss it completely. But you're going to see a repeat of things as they get to Mount Sinai. And we talked about that, right? While, while they're getting the law and making a golden calf at Sinai, at Moab, while God is forcing a pagan to bless Israel, they're thinking about engaging in more immorality and complaining and cursing. In other words, Israel repeats itself. You watch one generation leave rebelling, and then before you know it, you got the next generation, that's the ones with the snakes, saying to themselves, well, God, what is he doing? And boom, snakes come. That's not the same generation. There's a repeat. So if you're better at this than I am, you'll, you'll probably pick up on it quicker, but there are seven stops. Every seven stops that you get, you're going to see a little bit of overlapping pattern of behavior, and, and I think it's a point out to what? Human nature. It's a sad reality that we're depraved and corrupted and sinful, that we repeat our sin, right? What does Paul write in Romans 7? I do what I don't want to do, and the thing I want to do, I don't do. That's Israel. But let me say this, that's us. Those repetitive cycles, and we're like, how ridiculous are you guys? And I'm like, right. And the redeemed in Israel, if they were looking down, like, how ridiculous is the church? <laughs> Look at them. They keep doing the same. Like, this is what we are as humans. This is why we needed a redeemer. But you'll see that going. And, and what you want to see as you work through the chapter is God is at work and God is guiding. It's a look back as they prepare to launch into this final stage. It sees his grace and it sees his sustaining hand. It recognizes that he is the one that has carried them through. And this is, I think, very helpful as I think about it because I'm, I'm not a look-back personality. So I don't look back and say, okay, what's happened? I'm always thinking, what, what do I do to get forward? What forward progress is in my mindset? This can be very dangerous, though. Do we ever take the time ourselves to see what God has done? To look back, not in what we've accomplished, but to look back and say, wow, I... I see his gracious and sustaining hand. I recognize that I wouldn't do this. I wouldn't be capable of this, that we don't make it without him. To know he has and will follow through on his word and promise, though so often our sin clouds that perspective. Think about Israel. What blocks their view of God over and over again? Sin. Or to make it really personal, they do, themselves. They're sinful people, and they get in the place of God, and they, they miss what God has done. Sin clouds what God has accomplished in our lives. We do ourselves a very horrific spiritual service by not looking back, not to glorify yourself, but to look back and say, oh, all the places I thought I did a thing so amazing really was God sustaining, walking me through, even when I'm just the most corrupt, horrific human being I could possibly be, God carrying me through. It's his grace and it's his sustaining hand. Then we get to the end of 30, 
53, 50 through 56, and I'm going to read these because it's really critical. This is, this is Joshua. This is what he's supposed to do. He blows it with the Gibeonites. We watch the judges, and then they mess it up there as well. God's clear. This is what he says to Moses in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho. Could he make any more clear where he's at? Jericho's right over here, and this is where he's at. He's, he's right there. And he says to him, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, When you are passed over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their pictures, that's their idols, and destroy all their molten images, so metal and stone, and quite pluck down all their high places, which is an awkward way of saying demolish their places of worship. And you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell therein, for I have given you the land to possess it. You know what the Canaanites could have done in front of Israel? Left. That's what Israel was told to do. Get them out. Don't leave anyone there. Drive them from the land. And then you'll divide the land by lot for inheritance among your families, and to the more you shall give the more inheritance, and to the fewer you shall give the less inheritance. Every man's inheritance shall be in the place where his lot falleth. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But look at 55. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. Moreover, beyond that, in addition, make note of this, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. This is where you've been. This is what you need to go do. And I'm going to equip you. And I'm going to give you guidance. He gave them, you can break it out in three or two. I did it in three. I did it two first and did three just so it's easy to remember. Drive out all inhabitants. Destroy all idols. Demolish all worship sites. What have you done if you actually do that? You've obeyed. That's critical. What else is gone? Yeah, temptation's out. Nobody to sway you, nothing to sway you, and no place to be swayed. Demolish. And that's what it says, quite pluck down. It's a really old way of saying, get rid of it, break it down. In other words, if this worship site is up a little bit and you crumble it down and there's still a mound there, dig a hole, bury it, flip it down, and sow some grass over the top and make it look like clean lawn. You make sure that that worship site disappears, that it's completely gone. But if you don't, it'll trip you up, and then Israel, you're going to get what was coming to them. Now, listen just quickly through Israel's history. What happens? Well, they end up worshiping idols. They don't get rid of all the inhabitants. They get sucked into this stuff. And what takes place? Yeah. They get driven out of the land. You know what happens to the temple? How many times does the temple get destroyed? Too many. <laughs> it's awful. 80, 70 is the last time. But taken to the ground. Occupied by people that did not worship the true God. We're in John chapter 4. We're going to deal with the tension between the Samaritans and the Jews, all centering around pagan influence that comes in, Jews intermarrying. That's how the Samaritans come to be. Why? Because the whole northern kingdom is taken away. 
And the forests and the jungle come in, the lions come in, they repopulate. It doesn't work. you got a priest that comes to teach him about the God of the Lamb, but he's a priest that grew up under Jehoiakim or Jehoiadin, who led the people astray. So he has an eye, half an idea what to teach him, and he has a synchronistic religion that points to the true God but still worships the old gods. In other words, not pure religion. And we're going to see an outflow of this when we get to chapter 4, which is this Sunday, in John, and we're going to watch God on purposely go reach a Samaritan woman and tell her he's the Messiah in the most direct way that he ever does. He left Jerusalem and left talking to Jews to go tell a Samaritan that he was the Savior of the world. Talk about individuality there. Talk about going straight to one thing with one purpose. But they are a people who didn't associate with the Jews. Didn't Why? Because this, they disobeyed God and felt it. I put the application for today sits uh, right at hand for us, and that's leave the world near you, flirt with their idols, visit their sites, and you'll cave to the temptation, and it will be a perpetual thorn in your side. It will hinder you from true blessing on earth. You go visit their worship sites, and I don't need to write down what they are, and you're going to be tempted to be like them. You're going to engage in their worship. You keep them near you. You keep following what they follow. You keep going to their worship sites. No surprise where it lands. I'm going to go really quick because I want to give us at least five minutes to share some applications with everyone. Chapter 34 is the boundaries of the land. The tribal chiefs gather uh, and make the selection with Joshua and Eliezer. Chapter 35 touches on um, promised cities to the Levites and then cities of refuge. Uh, in their land, you kill someone accidentally, their avenger can kill you. Unless you get to the city of refuge, you're freed from exile. If you're innocent, you stay at that city and you're judged innocent. If you're a murderer, they're going to kill you. They're, gonna get rid they're actually going to let the avenger kill you. They're going to help them do the job. But if you're innocent, it's actual accidental death, then you stay in that city until what? The death of the high priest. And what's interesting, if you read other Jewish literature, it has nothing to do with how long you're in the city of exile. So if you accidentally kill something, somebody, it hurts. It costs you. You leave where you're at and you're in this city. If you leave the city, the avenger can kill you. But when the high priest dies, his death frees you. See another weave to what God is doing? Death required death and then someone dies and it lets you go. It's not how long you served. It's the high priest dies. And then you go on from there, and I, and I always love this. If you want to know how important it is for those ladies to get their land in Manasseh, they come back around in chapter 36, and the guys are complaining because they're afraid they're going to marry someone from some other tribe. And so we have another law that says marry within your tribe to keep the allotment secure. And what you learn is, one, God cared about their situation, and he dealt with it in detail three times in numbers it comes up that he deals with it. And two, God is a God of detail. He wanted it done correctly. He wanted to make sure the tribes who got their land kept their land. That was his purpose. That was his goal.